Anthony Day and this is the Sustainable Futures Show. I'm talking about fracking, of course, about wind, again, about suing the government and about waiting for trains. You can also listen to the whole of my recent presentation to the Professional Speaking Association. But first of all, it's official. Medical opinion states that climate change is bad for you. The Lancet, a peer-reviewed medical journal, this week published its second review on climate change. There's a short video on thelancet.com, that's T-H-E-L-A-N-C-E-T.com, which is worth a look. Review authors Helen Wang and Richard Horton state that the risks from climate change are not only serious, but potentially catastrophic. Loss of life can be directly caused by extreme weather, such as floods and heat waves. Indirect causes are poor water quality, air pollution and ecological change. Global warming leads to sea level rise, which in turn causes mass migrations, pressure on resources and can lead to conflict. As heat waves become more common, more people are affected. Those over 65 are more vulnerable and population statistics show a disproportionate number of older people concentrated in areas likely to experience extreme temperatures. The report, like the G7 ministers and the Pope, calls for fossil fuels to be phased out. 80% of the world's energy currently comes from fossil fuels, and emissions cause poor air quality, which in turn causes heart attacks and lung disease, as well as long-term effects on health. For the authors, it's not all bad news. They see that responding to climate change could be the greatest global health opportunity of the 21st century. The level of understanding of the importance of climate change varies widely across the world, with some of the poorest understanding in some of the most developed countries. The science is clear. The technological solutions are available. It is now entirely a matter of political commitment. And the report urges medical professionals to go out and spread the word. Incidentally, there's a heat wave currently affecting Pakistan, where temperatures of 45 degrees centigrade and more are proving fatal. The situation is made worse by water shortages and because many people are fasting for Ramadan. There's a serious drought in Puerto Rico and other parts of the Caribbean as well. Talking of political commitment, I noted last week that the government was cutting subsidies to onshore wind by withdrawing the Renewables Obligation Scheme from April 2016, a year earlier than originally promised. Minister Amber Rudd told Parliament this week that, as a result, some 250 schemes were unlikely to go ahead. She also hinted that contract for difference, a key factor in determining project viability, could also be withdrawn. Once again, investors have been encouraged to develop long-term infrastructure projects only to have the rules changed at short notice. The Scottish Government is particularly annoyed by this as around 70% of the projects likely to be affected are located in Scotland. Fergus Ewing, the Scottish Energy Minister, has invited Ms Rudd for talks in Scotland. The local industry fears that the changes could cost it as much as £3 billion in lost business. 
It will be interesting to see if the Minister accepts the invitation and even more interesting to hear what she has to say. Fracking is in the news again. Quadrilla has applied for planning permission for test drilling followed by test fracking in Lancashire. There are two sites involved, Little Plumpton and Roseacre Wood. The council has been advised by its planning officers to approve the application, but there is much local opposition. The council rejected the Roseacre Wood scheme on the grounds that there would be an unacceptable increase of heavy vehicle traffic in the area. The decision on Little Plumpton was deferred until Monday the 29th to allow councillors to take legal advice. This advice has now been published and it warned that if councillors refused the application it was unlikely that they would win on appeal and if they lost the council would have to bear the legal costs. It therefore seems highly likely that the Little Plumpton application will be approved even though many councillors oppose it and so do many residents. As I've mentioned before, the government have promised local residents the last word on any applications for wind turbines, while making sure that local residents have no say at all in applications for fracking. The greenest government ever. Well, perhaps it doesn't have to be anymore, now that it hasn't got the Lib Dems looking over its shoulder. Citizens in the Netherlands have called their government to account and claimed that more must be done to tackle climate change. 886 private citizens went to court to demand urgent action, and they won. The Netherlands are on the way to a 17% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions from 1990 levels by 2020, but that's not good enough for the litigants. They persuaded the judge to rule the state also has to ensure that the Dutch emissions in the year 2020 will be at least 25% lower than those in 1990. Of course, the government will appeal. It's also not clear how the government could be held to the judgment. If they fail to comply, would they get fined? Who buy? The government? What good would that do? At least the case demonstrates that there are concerned citizens across the world, and the case is robust enough to be upheld in law. Not a good week for transport, especially electric transport. The British government announced yesterday that they were pausing two major electrification schemes for lack of funds. The Great Western electrification is now expected to cost three times the original estimate, and other schemes are also over budget. This means that the electrification of the Midland Main Line and the link from Leeds to Manchester are postponed indefinitely. So much for the powerhouse of the north. Leeds and Manchester are 45 miles apart. Most trains take 56 minutes for the journey. Bits of it are quite fast, but for some reason the second part is usually at walking pace or less. The government has blamed Network Rail, now legally part of the civil service and therefore under the direct control of ministers. The chairman has been fired and senior executives won't get bonuses. Cold comfort for the many passengers who won't now get new trains. The other bad news was an electric bus which burst into flames in York. The Optari Versa is a widely used bus, available as a diesel, diesel-electric hybrid or 
as in this case, pure electric. In electric form, it has a range of 70 to 90 miles, and York recently took delivery of a fleet of 12 to provide a shuttle service to the park and ride locations on the edge of the city. No one was hurt in the blaze, but the rear of the bus was severely damaged. A loud bang was heard, and popular headlines claimed that the engine blew up. More probably, it was a fault in the lithium-ion batteries. Battery technology has moved so far that we don't need trolley buses anymore. Buses can carry as much power as they need in batteries. This means we are pushing battery technology to the limit. Do you remember Boeing's 787 Dreamliner, grounded a few years ago because of fires in the lithium-ion batteries? York's remaining 11 electric buses are back in service today after full safety checks. They won't let one mishap prejudice the future of clean transport. Although, if you look at the pictures of the smoke, that burning bus must have had one hell of a carbon footprint. That's nearly it for this week, but not quite. Don't forget that the next instalment of The Winning of the Carbon War will be out on the 1st of July. It's free. Find it at jeremyleggett.net. That's with double G and double T. jeremyleggett.net. I told you that I made a presentation to the Professional Speaking Association in London. Well, here's the recording. It lasts 30 minutes, so if you haven't got time, I'll understand. It will be out on video shortly, both the full 30-minute version and edited highlights, which will probably come down to about two minutes. Either way, there will be another episode of the Sustainable Futures Show next week. Thanks for listening, and if you have any comments, ideas or suggestions, get in touch via mail at Anthony. And now, here's my PSA presentation. Yes, we're all going to die. That is the message from an American academic called Guy McPherson who's just completed a lecture tour of Europe. He tells us we're all going to die. Now, before I go into that in more detail, I'm going to set the scene, give you some background, because I understand you're all linear actives. Has anybody here been to a presentation on change? Is there anybody who's not been to a presentation on change? There are change consultants everywhere, aren't there? They can change your appearance. They can change your luck. They can change your life. There are change architects. There are change managers who'll change your business, change your fortune, change everything about you. The one thing that doesn't change about management education is change. And I too am going to talk about change, climate change amongst other things. So no change there then. I'm Anthony Day and I am the sustainability coach. So what is sustainability? Sustainability is dealing with the challenges and opportunities from the megatrends which are affecting us as businesses, as speakers, as people. The megatrends which are driven by things like population and water and waste and resources and food and the two most important things which are closely intertwined, one is energy, the other is climate change. Energy and climate change. But let's go back to our friend from America who is going around the world saying, you're all going to die. And the second thing he says, but you knew that because you're human and all humans die. 
Well, I don't know that's a very sensible gambit. But then he goes on from that and he says, and you're all going to die soon. Because his thesis is that climate change is out of control. We are beyond the point of no return. There's nothing whatever we can do. And we are in the middle of the sixth great extinction. Now, in the history, the multi-billion year history of the planet, we've had five extinctions, which means that almost all forms of life have died out. And then after a few hundred million years, things have popped up again. And after a few more hundred million years, they've all died out. One of these extinctions took out the dinosaurs. And we're now going through the sixth great extinction. We are losing hundreds of species across the world every day. And Professor McPherson's thesis is that we are one of those species that will be wiped out in this sixth great extinction. And there's nothing we can do about it because it's too late. That's what he says. And, well, maybe you can try and escape from it. Apparently he told Steve Wozniak. Steve Wozniak is one of the founders of Apple. And Steve Wozniak decided to buy a house in Tasmania, because Tasmania is quite a long way south. It's quite a long way towards the Antarctic. And therefore, it's one of the last places that will get affected by runaway climate change. Or you could follow the lead of uh, Elon Musk. Has, uh, who's heard of Elon Musk? Tesla. First thing he did was one of the founders of PayPal. And when he cashed out of PayPal, then yes, Tesla. He invested in Tesla, which produces, amongst other things, the Tesla electric car. It's probably the first serious electric car because it will do 0 to 60 in under four seconds and it has a range of up to 300 miles. So that's a usable vehicle, not like the early ones that we had. The other thing that he's done, he's chief executive of Tesla, by the way, but he's also chief executive of SpaceX. SpaceX is the only non-governmental organisation which has successfully launched a spacecraft and docked it with the International Space Station. This guy's only 43. He's a multi-billionaire. Makes you sick, doesn't it? He is planning, apparently, to escape to Mars. Well, if you've fouled up one planet, why not go and uh, start on another one? He's planning to have a shot to Mars by 2020. He's taking 10 people. There are, of course, 7.2 billion people on this planet, so your chances of getting a ticket are small. But then again, would you want to go to Mars? Because the spacecraft that you'll go in is about the size of a camper van, and it takes two years. So the thought of being in a camper van with nine other people you don't really know for two years, well, you'd run out of conversation, wouldn't you? And uh, the other thing, of course, when you arrive at, uh, on Mars, there is no atmosphere. Although, of course, if you've been in a camper van for two years with nine other people, the atmosphere in that will be pretty dreadful. <laughs> the upshot of all this really is that there isn't really a solution. And I do ask myself, why is this guy trying to make a career as an international speaker? Why is he taking the trouble to go around the world to say to people, you're all going to die and there's nothing you can do about it? I can't understand what his motivation is. I don't think it's the money. 
because uh, he crowdfunded this tour and he relied on that for, for the costs, plus whatever he could collect in a hat after the meetings. Maybe he's finished. But, uh, <laughs> but perhaps he's seen a niche, or indeed a niche. There are a number of motivational speakers here today, highly professional motivational speakers. Perhaps he wants to be the first demotivational speaker. <laughs> Before we go into the implications of climate change, we have to ask the question, is he right? Is he right when he says, we're all going to die, the world is going to come to an end, uh, human race is going to become extinct, and incidentally, he says it's going to become extinct in anything from 18 months to 10 years. You're all going to die soon, he says. Is he right? Well, yes. And no. Emphatically, no. Yes, I believe that climate change is a very serious issue. And all of a sudden, the politicians are beginning to take it seriously, or at least to pay serious lip service to it. But no, I refuse to believe that it is too late to do anything about it. We are going to have to take steps. But before, <coughs> excuse me, before I explore exactly how it will affect us as speakers, as international speakers, as consumers, some of us as parents, as taxpayers, let's remind ourselves what climate change actually is. A lot of people say, well, it's global warming, isn't it? And really, if you look out of the window today, which is supposed to be a summer's day, you could say anything that warms up Britain can't be bad. If we had a bit more heat, well, Scarborough could be like the Seychelles. <laughs> well, it could. And Brighton could be like Bali. And Manchester could be like Marrakesh. And Torquay could be like Turkey. And Wolverhampton... Well, you probably wouldn't go there, but you know what I mean. But unfortunately, it doesn't work like that. We're talking about global warming, but that doesn't mean more sunshine. The way that global warming works is that the sun shines onto the surface of the Earth, and most of the sun, most of the light and heat is radiated out and lost in space. But our planet is different, because at the top of the atmosphere, we have a layer of greenhouse gas and mainly CO2, carbon dioxide, methane, and some other rarer gases. And that traps a certain amount of heat. And if we didn't trap that heat, we wouldn't have life on Earth. That's what makes our planet different. But our problem is that we are making that layer of greenhouse gas thicker, and we are trapping excess heat, and that is what's causing problems. And we are making that layer of greenhouse gas thicker by burning fossil fuels and creating carbon dioxide emissions, amongst other things. Because we burn fossil fuels to run our power stations, coal. We burn fossil fuels to run our cars, and our trains, and our aircraft, oil. We burn fossil fuels to heat our homes, gas. And that's what, it, what causes extra heat to be trapped within the atmosphere. The first thing it does, of course, is raise the temperature of the oceans. And warmer water takes up more space than colder water. And therefore sea levels are rising. They vary across the face of the Earth, of course, but they're rising on average by about three millimetres a year. And you look at that and you say, well, that's no big deal, really. 
Look at it another way. Three, an extra layer, three millimetre layer of water across the area of the Thames estuary is a weight of a million tonnes. And of course that's another million tonnes next year and the year after and the year after that. Which the Thames barrier has to hold back. Which the Thames barrier has to hold back in the face of increasingly violent, unpredictable and stormy weather. Because global warming, don't think warming, don't think heat, think energy. It's the energy which is driving our weather systems. And the more energy, the more violent, the more unpredictable these, energy, the, these weather systems become. We have weather in places where we didn't expect it. We have weather disappearing from places. So, for example, last month, floods in Texas. Did you see on the news about the floods in Texas? It's people being washed away in completely unprecedented, after completely unprecedented rainfall. And then on the other side of the United States, they've declared a state of emergency in California. And why? They are going into their fourth consecutive summer of drought. Across the world in India, which we all know is a hot country, they've just had an extreme heat wave. They've had people dying. Yeah? You were there. 48, 49 degrees. This is unprecedented. Nobody can say that the climate is not changing. So, in California, Starbucks have stopped bottling water. In California, the state government is negotiating with the farmers to cut water consumption by 25%. What that will actually do for agricultural production, who knows. And how does it affect us? Well, you may have seen the news, it was last year actually, Asda said that 95%, 95% of its fresh food, which must be fruit and vegetables and salads and meat and dairy and fish, 95% of its fresh food is at risk from climate change. And if Asda is saying that, you can be damn sure that Tesco and Sainsbury's and Morrison's and all the rest are in exactly the same boat. A lot of the consequences of climate change are happening in remote parts of the world of which we know little. But these days they affect what happens here. Because 40% of all the food that we consume in this country, 40% and rising, is imported. So we are dependent on those long and distant supply chains. This is an effect uh, for all of us. A couple of examples. I saw a picture the other day of almond or orchards in California, dead almond trees. California produces 80% of the world's al almond crop. So if the trees are dying there, well, they're going to get scarce and they're going to get expensive. And that's the least of it. And then, of course, there's coffee. Does anybody here drink coffee? Oh, right. Well, you probably know there are two major types of, or species of, of coffee. There's Robusta and there's Arabica. Robusta is quite common. There's lots of it, but people don't generally like it. There's, some people say it tastes of peanuts. Some people say it's, it's bitter. It's commonly used to bulk out the cheaper brands. But there's plenty of it. But what we prefer to drink is Arabica. The trouble with Arabica is climate change is changing the growing conditions. The supply of Arabica, the yield, is falling. And therefore, you're going to have to pay more to drink good coffee. But that's the supply side. Climate change is having an influence on agricultural production. But don't neglect the demand side. It is predicted that by 2030, which is only 15 years off, at my age, 15 years isn't very long, um, 
By 2030, there will be 2.5 billion people in the middle class, or who will consider themselves to be middle class. Now, 7.2 billion people on the planet at the moment, 2.5 billion, that's more or less, more than one in three, will consider themselves middle class and expect a Western diet, a Western lifestyle, Western consumer goods, um, Western cars, Western houses, Western travel. So the demand for all sorts of resources, not just food, which will affect us because we are buying in global markets, the demand is going to become phenomenal. All we can see is prices, I'm afraid, rising and indeed things becoming more difficult to obtain. But how does this affect speakers and international speakers in particular? Well, I've said that energy and climate change are closely linked and we travel and travel is a consumer of energy, generally. I've been asked to talk to you about environmentally responsible travel. Well, it's walking. <laughs> or cycling. <coughs> Public transport has a relatively low carbon footprint. Driving your car is quite significantly worse, and flying is an absolute no-no. So, am I saying you should only take a gig if it's within walking distance? If I did, you'd say that's utter nonsense. That's because you're polite members of the PSA. Other people would be far ruder. I know that if you got a call tomorrow offering you a gig, you would take it even if you had to fly to New York or Sydney or anywhere in between or even drive to Wolverhampton. And if you actually found out that I flew in from Australia last Tuesday and that that was my second trip in the last 12 months, you'd say, who is this hypocrite? And uh, if I admitted that I also flew to Cyprus last year uh, and to Italy, you'd take very, very little notice of what I have to say. Well, of course, I would say I flew to Cyprus last year because I was invited to speak at the seventh international CSR conference. And I told everybody there to be green and to, remove, and to reduce their carbon footprints. And if they were listening, and they did, then obviously that offsets my carbon footprint for the trip. But I have no such excuse for going to Australia. But I went to Australia because 22 days ago, exactly, my grandson was born in Perth, Western Australia, and I was there. And even as a committed environmentalist, I couldn't say to the family, this is environmentally irresponsible, I can't go. <laughs> we are where we are. We live in the society in which we live. We are speakers, we travel, end of. That is what happens. But I believe that there are changes afoot. I believe there are changes which we can make, which will save us money as well as reducing our carbon footprint. And I believe there are changes which will be imposed on us. And that's why I think there will be very significant changes in the speaking business, uh, and in particular the international speaking business. Now sustainability at large is being adopted by more and more organisations. Big corporates issue their sustainability reports as well as their financial reports and everything else. And most of them are doing a good job. They're being pressured by investors, of course, and to some extent by governments. And even those that are just doing it as a sort of greenwash, because it's fashionable, it's a good thing to do, 
they are putting pressure on suppliers and they're putting pressure as well on the events industry. Because if a corporate is involved or sponsoring or attending uh, an event, it doesn't want that event to do anything which will actually clash with its green sustainable credentials. There is an international standard, ISO 2012-1. Now that came out of London 2012. That was developed from the methodology that was used to make the London Olympics the greenest Olympics ever. And that means that there's a whole range of checklists and guidelines which event organisers can use to make sure that they manage waste, that they recycle, that they source food locally, that they use as little energy as possible and source it from green sources if they can. And it may mean that they come to you and ask you about your travel to the venue. And they may pay to offset your carbon footprint or indeed to offset the carbon footprint of the delegates. I'm sceptical about offsetting, but that's a separate issue. They may also ask about your materials, about your books. They might ask if it's actually come from um, sustainable, the papers come from sustainable forests and that sort of thing. So there is a move um, as far as events are concerned towards sustainability. But it's just one of those things, you do what your customer expects and more and more customers are expecting that their suppliers, including event organisers, will be sustainable. But the big trend, the big mega trend, which I think is going to change the face of an awful lot of things, is the rise in the oil and energy price. How so, you may say, because this time last year, energy, anybody rem does anybody remember what the price of a barrel of oil was this time last year? 120. 120. It was about 120, $120 a barrel. And it fell off a cliff towards the end of last year, it went right down to about 40. And it's now up around 55 to 65. So why am I saying that the oil price is going to uh, damage our businesses when it's down so low? Well, the reason it's fallen is that it's been driven down. It's been driven down by Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia have been overproducing. They've caused a glut of oil, and that's caused the price to collapse. Why would they want to do that? Well, they want to do that because they want to bankrupt the Canadian tar sands, and they want to bankrupt the American fracking industry. And while American fracking has produced an awful lot of oil, it's produced very little return, if any, for the people who own all the material they've put in to actually do the fracking. A lot of fracking sites are being taken out of production in the United States because the price has collapsed. You may have read also, in a very small way, the North Sea is decommissioning rigs because the price makes it uneconomic. Saudi Arabia desperately needs America to continue to rely on Saudi Arabia for oil because Saudi Arabia relies on America for defence material, for resources, for support, for America being the policeman of the Middle East. If America can get all its oil locally, then Saudi is going to be left out on a limb. Once they've managed to bankrupt their competition, then the oil price will come back up again. I've heard people say, expect it, be, expect it to be up. No, they didn't say that. I've heard people say, expect it to be back up to 120 by the end of the year, or at least within 12 months. But that'll only be the start. 
Anybody remember the Deepwater Horizon? Big oil disaster in the Gulf of Mexico. It was about two years ago, I think, where this uh, rig blew out. A number of people were killed. Fires on the surface of the sea. It took weeks and weeks and weeks to block the, the well as it gushed oil into the sea. And, of course, it affected a, <coughs> excuse me, a, a lot of beaches around the Gulf. And then you may have heard that, um, yes, the ice is melting in the Arctic. And Shell says, oh, we can get our rigs in there and we can drill for oil. And despite a lot of very vocal op opposition, they are making plans to do just that. Their rigs are on the way. And you've probably also heard about fracking. Our government is uh, rushing through legislation to stimulate the fracking industry and uh, to enable oil companies to drill beneath your homes without needing your permission. That's democracy. Um, why are these people looking in these really difficult and remote places for oil? <coughs> Basically because the easy oil has gone. It is running out. So one factor that is going to drive up the price is scarcity. The second factor is that there is a report which has stated that if we burn all the fossil fuel resources, all of them, that's all the oil, all the coal, all the gas, <coughs> then we will drive global temperatures way, way beyond crisis level. And in fact, we've got to leave two-thirds of the known reserves in the ground. That has been put out by uh, a think tank, but it's also been picked up by the IMF and it's been picked up by the Bank of England, who have identified that there is at risk, there is a risk from the fact that these assets may not be available for use. But it's also been picked up by governments. We had the G7 conference, didn't we, last, uh, last week. And climate change was on the agenda. And in fact, they went so far as to say that we must phase out fossil fuels. And everybody said that is an amazing statement. It is an amazing statement. And I think it's a very encouraging statement that they have recognised that we need to phase out fossil fuels. Unfortunately, they've said we're going to phase out fossil fuels by 2100, which is easy to say if you know you'll be long dead by then. <laughs> we need to phase them out much, much more quickly than that, but it's a start. In Paris, in December, 195 countries come together to talk about measures to reduce the nation, the world's carbon footprint. And if they actually get together and they do something, then that's more, more than likely to be through a carbon price, a carbon tax, and that's another thing which will drive the prices up. So if we get to the stage where oil is horribly, horribly expensive, how can we, as speakers and as international speakers, protect ourselves? Well, I mean, I suppose it's pretty obvious. Buy a car which does um, uh, a good MPG. Drove down yesterday. I'm really proud. Yes, I drove down yesterday. Got 65 miles to the gallon. That's mainly because there's roadworks all the way down the M1, and you have to go really slowly. But it's amazing what it does for your MPG. But buy a car which does a good MPG. You don't have to sacrifice performance and cons and uh, comfort these days to get a car which is economical. Keep your car for an extra year, or two years, or three years, or four years, because the longer you defer the um, replacement of your car, then that saves you money. 
It also means that the energy, and there's a significant amount of energy, which is needed to manufacture the new car which you eventually buy, that is deferred as well. But if the oil price goes up to silly levels, while you can buy an electric car and avoid, avoid, oil, avoid oil, there's no such solution for a, a, aviation. You can buy electric cars now. I've told you about the Tesla, which is a practical car. Now, you might say it's quite expensive to buy a Tesla. It is quite expensive to buy, although they're bringing out a compact model next year, which will presumably be cheaper. But the point is, if you charge up at a Tesla charging point, of which they are increasing numbers, then it's free. So your fuel is free. If you can only charge up at home, it costs you less than £10 to charge up. And if you could do 300 miles on uh, £10 worth of fuel, that's an awful lot less than putting petrol or diesel in your car. I predict that within 10 years, most people in this room will be driving electric cars. Within 20 years, nobody will be driving electric cars because they'll all be driving themselves. But going back to aviation, if oil goes through the roof, there is no substitute and there is nothing on the technological horizon to replace oil as aviation spirit. So perhaps we will go back to the situation that we had 40 years ago, which many people will not remember. But 40 years ago, there were no budget airlines. There was no Ryanair. There was no EasyJet. Air travel was for the rich, and it was incredibly expensive. So perhaps that's what's going to happen in the future. Now, if it happens, if you are an international speaker, and if you are a well-established and respected international speaker, I can see that the event organisers will come to you, and they will be prepared to pay your fee and your fare and bring you to their events. But I think it's going to be more difficult for new speakers to break into the international market because of this immediate very significant overhead. Maybe we will see the event industry creating fewer but much larger events so delegates can get more value from a single trip. Or maybe we will see a lot more smaller local events so delegates don't have so far to travel. But I do believe that the energy price, as it changes, will drive changes in our business. I also think that the other mega trend, which uh, happens all the time, has been happening for years and which we take for granted, which is the technological revolution, is that uh, it will affect us in two ways. Now, what did I say about uh, um, jobs for speakers, if you're good? Well, the thing is, the technological revolution means that more and more jobs are being de-skilled and eliminated. And all right. At the lower level, we've got automated tills in shops, an awful lot of things that would be done by uh, people either on the telephone or face-to-face -face in shops are done by us now when we go online and we do our online purchases. A lot of jobs are disappearing because computers can do so much of it. But we, as speakers, are creatives. We do things that computers can't do. And that's why I think that if we are on that ladder of professional speaking, we are in a much stronger position than many people. Now, I'm not saying you're a professional speaker, you've got a job for life, because you're on the right track, but you're going to have to be a good speaker, and that means 
good at speaking, good material, good knowledge of your niche, or indeed your niche, and um, good at marketing. And if you ask the fellows and the experienced and successful members in this room, they'll also say a bit about hard work as well. But I think we're going in a much more productive direction than a lot of people who are wandering around wondering why they're flipping burgers and uh, serving coffee, even though they've got letters after their name, degrees, and goodness knows what. Now, the other aspect of the technological revolution, we've seen a bit of it. It wasn't live, unfortunately, but people can appear remotely. We can use webinars, and we can use Skype, and we can use teleconferences, and I'm sure you're all doing that already. But one thing I would say is, many of us use PowerPoint, and many, many speakers use PowerPoint. And apart from the ones in the PSA, most of them use it, make an absolute mess of it. We are the professionals. We must be professional not only in PowerPoint and, and so on, but we must also become professional in the use of the communications techniques. Because I think there'll be more and more demand for speakers online if the costs of travel go up significantly. And the next big thing, you've got to keep abreast of, um, of the technology, because the next big thing is telepresence. Recently, the Prince of Wales opened a conference in Abu Dhabi. He stood on the stage. He addressed the audience, and they could all see him standing there. But in fact, he was in Windsor Castle. This was a holographic rendition. This was telepresence. He could have not only been standing in Abu Dhabi, in facsimile, but also in Paris, and in New York, and in Bangalore. He could be addressing people across the world. Now, I know that that's horribly expensive. You probably need a special studio. And the data charges will be enormous. But like all technologies, it's probably going to get cheaper. So keep an eye on that. Because those speakers who have got a telepresence, presence, those who are the early adopters, well, that's quite a differential, isn't it? It really is. We live in interesting times. John Maynard Keynes, the um, famous economist, said, in the long run, we're all dead. And Guy McPherson says we'll be dead soon. But we're not dead yet. So let's make the short term last as long as we possibly can. Let's enjoy our sustainability journey. And on the way, let's have a bloody good time. And that really is it for this week.